Welcome fellow pilots and other podcast listeners to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell. This is the first episode we're recording since the ratification of the tentative agreement. And today we will talk about that, how we will make sure that the implementation goes as smoothly as possible, and what you can expect from the MEC going forward. With me today is MEC Chairman Will McQuillan, Negotiating Committee Chairman Chris Gruner, and from the Strategic Planning Committee, Ronan O'Donohue and Drew Coyle, and from the Scheduling Committee, Scott Rubin. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Well, I don't think this is news to anyone that the tentative agreement ratified, but maybe you can just circle back to what uh, transpired and go from there. Yeah, for sure. It, actually, based on the participation numbers, I don't think that it's a surprise to anybody, but uh, the uh, tentative agreement did ratify on the 17th. And uh, as I've always said, the thing that I was most concerned about was seeing a good broad participation and turnout and having 96% of our pilots turn out to cast an informed vote based on the road shows that definitely felt like that was uh, was meaningful. It was good. And with an 82% um, ratification, you know, that that's also a, a nice solid number that makes me feel good that we hit the, the mark. And as I've said in my chairman's letter, I do fully respect that there's a a portion of the pilot group that uh, you know the agreement didn't hit the mark, but I appreciate the informed vote and the the turnout. It was just another demonstration of you know unity um, in this pilot group, which is exactly what got us to this agreement. You know, we're all going to jump on that actually really quickly because I feel like I owe a huge amount of thanks to the pilot group because they really did step forward. You know, you look at a ninety six percent, which is ironically the same number that was um, in the strike vote back in the spring, but that's a, a massive turnout by any standards. And it's been remarked upon by several MECs and several people in the Alpine national structure about the size of that turnout. And it's been the one thing that's been consistent with this pilot group for the past year is just that unity. It is remarkable how involved, how well attended the roadshows were. I mean, they actually, several of them exceeded what we had planned on. It gave us all a smile because we wanted that sort of participation. We wanted that level of education going into such an important agreement that has been achieved. And I um, mean, there's so many people that I would like to give like a lot of credit to. And you know, the communications team, Dave Campbell and Tanya did a phenomenal job. Even our, our staff in the office, Will, you got Kim, she did a great job on getting things set up for that. But unity is so important. It's not just a word and you now saw the value of it. Whether you go back to April 1st, whether you go back to the strike vote, whether you go back to the actual ratification vote, it's just so, so impressive to see this pilot group. And it's just so important. Drew, I, I'm going to pitch to you, actually, because it's so important going forward. Yeah, Rona, I think you're spot on. And I think that's one of the highlights of the last year is putting opportunities forward for pilots to show up and show their solidarity and their unity and really and truthfully, they rally behind uh, what they believed they needed and they showed up at every turn. And, and that was really an incredible thing to witness working uh, on SPC and, and SPSC with the entire MEC and everybody else. We, we put those opportunities forward for pilots to step up and show what they needed. And they absolutely delivered every single time, you know, more credit to the pilot group. We just can't give anymore. It's, it's amazing how much they stepped up and, and made this process their own. And I think it's important to note, too, that uh, really said it uh, at every roadshow and meant it, that there were a lot of people at the time of the merger that bet against us 
in terms of having that type of unity and being able to achieve what we've achieved. And this pilot group has stepped up in big, big ways. In addition, I think that Chris would agree that the unity, the demonstration unity, the consistent messaging from the pilot group about what we needed to do, what needed to be addressed, and what needed to be fixed was huge all the way through the process. And it also was the driving force behind getting to the agreement that we reached. Yeah, Will, and I want to jump on top of that too. And, and I really want to point out that this isn't something that we only need when we're in Section 6 contract negotiations. It's incredibly important for this pilot group to remain unified and stand behind the progress that they've made. Unity isn't just for contract negotiations. Yeah, and I'll just add my two cents to the importance of unity and solidarity, which is, I think we all know there are a number of factors that led to the success of this negotiation period, but the not having unity, a fractured pilot group, just being disorganized or disjointed would have been an easy opportunity for management to take advantage of that situation. And so this pilot group really held the line, came together in a, an important and significant way, and, and I really appreciate that. And one of the ways that unity is important is the displays of unity. So we did that during the picketing events and certainly on the April 1st picketing event or another example was the strike authorization ballot. We really showed that we were a unified group. Another way that we've been showing that is through the symbols that we've been wearing and having on our bags, our crew bags and whatnot, specifically all of the things that are orange. And so we've got some questions from pilots about what do we do now? What is What should we be showing and displaying? And Drew, do you want to talk about what the, the plan for that is? Absolutely. I, I have had several questions about orange. Is it time to take the orange off? Do we keep it? What do we do? And, and what I really want to do is kind of reflect back on what the orange symbols were, right? And this was something that we looked at as a outward sign of pilot resolve to accomplish certain issues. Scope being one of the most prominent bag tags that we had and, and a piece of orange that I think a lot of our pilots wore with pride. So while it was a outward display of, of that unity and that resolve around certain issues, I think it is time that we, we take the orange off and move past that particular sign that we utilized through the entire campaign to get this contract through and ratified. It in no way shows that we are walking away from that unity, but you know, it's a campaign that served its role. There are ways that I want to continue to encourage people to show that unity. And the first thing is obviously involvement. The second is every pilot should have their Alpha wings. Make sure that you're wearing your Alpha wing somewhere on your uniform. If you wear a blazer, uh, wear it on that. If you don't, wear it as a tie tack. But it's very important for all of our pilots to be wearing those. And if you do wear lanyards, we encourage you to wear the blue Alpha lanyard with pride. And, and of course, you and I, David, will be working on, on different campaigns down the road for other, other signs of that. But I do think that it's safe to say that those particular symbols got us where we needed to go. Right. And to put a finer point on what you're talking about, Drew, and a display of unity, taking it off in unison is another way to show that, that we're joined together over a common cause, all of us, all of us who are out flying the line and having a clean slate, so to speak, in one moment sends another message that we're still unified. We still have a lot of resolve to make sure things get done well. And we will, as we've said a minute ago, we will need that unity going forward to ensure that everything is implemented properly. 
I think one of the questions that's going to arise for a number of pilots, because we've had those orange contract 2020 pins for such a long time, David, is you know they may not have their traditional ALPA wings or their TITAC, and that's easily accessible. As we, we know from 96% of the pilots being able to log in, they know how to log into ALPA.org, and they can go to membership services and order that and have it shipped right to their house if they're missing. That's true. And you can even just call the the hotline one triple eight fly alpa And David, one of my primary goals with this podcast was to kind of address a number of the questions that we've gotten just in the, the last week, which is what's next? Everybody wants to know the implementation schedule. When will things be happening? And I think that we should spend a little bit of time focusing on that and explaining how things are going to phase in, which things should be tangible right at this moment or very, very shortly, that type of yeah, we started implementation meetings with the company actually before the contract was ratified. So we kind of get a head start with IT and everything working to see what the requirements would be for programming and making sure there were manual processes in place in the meantime to get things going in the right direction. Uh, since then, uh, we've continued to have several meetings, at least weekly. Been working on those with the uh, scheduling committee chairman, Scott Rubin, who's here today, and he's working and spearheading a lot of the uh, scheduling pieces with his team. And then the payroll committee chairman, Rich Deplain, has been working really hard, too, to make sure that everything's reflected on your paychecks correctly and all that's going to be uh, smooth when it starts rolling out. So uh, we will continue this pace as the contract is continued to be rolled out. And uh, over the next several months, we'll be meeting at least weekly to make sure things are staying on track. So just as a reminder, when we're talking about how this is programmed or what the timeline is for the rollout, so basically everything is going to be turned on on December 1st. So that's essentially when the contract starts. Now, of course, there's a ton of exceptions, so I'll walk through those. So the first one is, right, we have pay rates that are applied back to September 1st. The insurance cap increases that we have, those are all going to start January 1st per Section 27. And then there are other items that are delayed, which are in the implementation MOU. So review those and they kind of stagger. There's just a few items. Additionally, uh, we talked to the company and there are several things that will be implemented in November. So I can go ahead and walk through those real quick, just so you guys have an idea. And uh, we'll also have a comm out that kind of describes these things also, so you can go back and reference them. Holiday pay will be paid for Thanksgiving. Reassignments away from base will pay 150% in November. Long call and short call callouts will both increase to the new limit. So 14 hours for long call, two and a half hours for short call. Now, close in parking will not pay, you know, or, I'm sorry, if you get called out less than four hours, you won't get close in parking or ride share. So just keep that in mind. That won't be uh, rolled out just yet. Reserve flying on a day off, that will start in November. And then uh, the scheduling is going to stop contacting pilots via ACARS also. So that would be nice. But just remember, if you're a reserve pilot, to start checking your reserve schedule on the last leg of a trip when you get back to base. And then a couple other things. We've got uh, the precluded from bidding language. So if you didn't bid and you're flying that month, instead of getting the, just the stock pro rata line, then, which will take effect. And then you'll be able to drop the 60 hours when you're bidding in a first step. For December. Yeah, Chris, uh, I think your list was good. Just keep in mind too, a couple changes that will be coming as far as uh, our bidding timeline. So in December, when we bid for January, we'll be using that new bidding timeline, which 
when you bid your primary line, it'll open on a Thursday and be open for five days and then go through the first step, second step. That will happen in December, um, but we'll be bidding for January. Another thing is uh, the pairing construction rules that we uh, negotiated for 25B. We'll be building those pairings in January using those new rule sets. And that will start here in early November when we, when we will be building the January schedules. Another thing, uh, just to put a finer point on, reserve picking up on their days off will start in November. Keep in mind that the automated system will allow a reserve to pick up a trip and only keep legal rest, FAR legal rest of 10 hours between the release of that trip you picked up on your day off before you start your reserve duty. So just keep that in mind if you're picking up a trip, it will let you go to the FAR minimum 10 hour rest prior to your next reserve duty. If you're long call, it'll let you pick up a trip right till you go on long call because your rest starts once you receive a call when you're on. Yeah, also with the pay, I know a lot of people have been asking about that. So the new rates and the guarantees will be reflected on the November 18th paycheck. And then the retro pay for September and October, that will be a separate check that will come out around the same time. So you expect to see that around November 18th as well. We should already have out the list by the time this podcast goes out of the bonus payments or the credited service payments for everybody. So you can make sure that those are paid correctly. And uh, there's a process there to make sure that you can query or get an answer on why you're paid out a certain way, make sure that it's correct. And then after that two week period, then uh, that check will be sent out as well. That should happen end of November, beginning of December. So, and bottom line is over the next month, I should be getting all of these pay issues squared away. Yeah, and Chris, I just want to underscore that really quickly. When that gets sent out, it's really important that pilots make sure that they are being credited properly because after that two-week period closes, that's it, really. This is the your one and only opportunity to make sure you're going to be paid as you should be, correct? Yeah, that's right. So take a good look at it. We'll have email going out. We'll make sure that we're uh, following up on the uh, MEC update and things like that. So it'll be out there. So definitely make sure you take some time and review that. Yeah. And obviously that'll be mostly important for people who have been in different statuses over that time period. Make sure that the company is properly crediting you for where you were. That's correct. Also, I think it's important to point out, David, like I talked about up front, there are a lot of programming requirements for many of these things, but in the interim, we'll have manual processes for it. And again, as we're working through these issues and getting things online, there's always a few things to kind of work through and, you know, we'll continue to communicate and talk through those um, as we move through it all. I think though, at least until the spring, it's important for everybody to be proactive. So make sure you're utilizing all of the tools that we have to make sure that you understand your schedule and you're tracking your pay and things like that. So there's a trade desk, you know, if a trade doesn't go through, use the trade desk and then they're going to be able to apply those new rules quicker than the programming will. You know, it's going to take a while for that to catch up in Jeppesen or crew access. Uh, also, make sure you're checking Rainmaker for your pay. When you're looking at uh, things like ADG, reassignment pay, and delay pay, you want to make sure that those are being applied correctly. Again, we have a lot of people looking at it very carefully. 
but it doesn't hurt to stay on top of that and just make sure that uh, those things are being captured. Because again, until the programming is there, a lot of it's going to be manual and people just checking over everything to make sure that it got paid correctly. And then, of course, if you have questions on scheduling, make sure you're reaching out to contract compliance, you know, scheduling for volunteers. And then you can always contact your LEC representative, just like you guys have been over the last several years. But uh, that's always your point of contact into the union if you're not sure where, where to go and uh, how, to, how to work through any issues. So they'll be happy to help you or to point, point you in the right direction. Chris, uh, I'll add, uh, reinforce as we go forward, you know, there's a manual process on, on a lot of this stuff that process trades and et cetera, talking with the payroll folks, it's going to be important that you keep track of your own average daily guarantee so that you can cross check it with your pay stub, like you mentioned. So what I would recommend people do to do that is go to crew access, go to the hamburger menu, select reports and print your roster after you've completed the month and just look at every one of your trips and obviously single duty period trips don't have an ADG aspect to it but any multi-day trip has got an average of 515 a day so any two-day trip needs to be 1030 any three-day trip needs to be 1545 at least that much right Scott yes and just Look at your credit on your roster there and add up the difference so you can anticipate what your ADG payment would be in that next paycheck. Obviously, there may be other rigs that apply and more is better. Yes. Other rigs are other hard time, right? Yeah. If you if I fly a three-day trip and it's credit 16.50, average daily guarantee didn't kick in. So we're just looking for a three-day trip that only paid 15. And then now, or 12 or whatever, and then that would trigger the other day of guarantee. Scott, one of the questions I've heard quite a bit came up on the road shows is, is it really going to take 18 months to get PBS? So why that long? And I know there's a lot behind that. Yeah, sure, David. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's going to take, I mean, we're shooting to get it sooner, but we have to have a reasonable uh, timeline that our vendor can actually take all of our contractual rules and put them into their PBS system and produce that for for us here at Alaska, as well as there needs to be interaction between our current systems to make it all work. Uh, in other words, JCTE, crew access, and even some other back-ended programs that need to interface with the whole thing. So. It's kind of like if you ordered a brand new car and you get a spot on an assembly line and they say on this date, we're going to start building your car and then it'll be to you at, at your dealership on this day. They do the same kind of thing with the programming of any of these IT systems. And the first slot that we can get into is that January release of 2024. So that's just where we can get in the queue to have it programmed and to us the way the systems are set up. I understand that, but I think a lot of people feel like in this day and age, shouldn't they be able to program that faster? It seems like it should be more plug and play than it is. So we went with this vendor specifically because it has more plug and play features than other vendors do, which will expedite the implementation here for us. 
as well as some familiarity with it because our flight attendants use that system, although they have a different rule set. So even though they, they're integrated and use that same uh, PBS system, we're going to have a totally different rule set that needs to be programmed. A lot of the rules and stuff that we negotiated are standard rule sets that NABLUE has, but some of the unique stuff that we were able to negotiate, like vacation and how vacation's handled in the PBS, that is uh, somewhat of new concepts that they have to program. Um, we're going to meet in early November with NABLUE to make sure that we have a, a full landscape of everything that needs to be done in programming so that they understand what they got to build for us. And that'll give us even even better idea of the, the true timeline once they take that information and analyze it with their uh, programmers. Yep. And I appreciate the skepticism from the pilot group at large based on how third step has gone, for example. And I guess the only thing I can add to that is that uh, in this case, there is a lot of uh, very high level attention and resources being devoted to making this move as quickly and effectively as possible. And we have the backstop of a pretty good penalty if they don't get it um, implemented on time. Yeah, and I think another factor too, right, is that once that's all built, there needs to be a little bit of testing time to make sure that it's going to work as it should and honor seniority and all, all the things that a uh, PBS system should do. And I know there's also been a commitment from the MEC not to just dump this new system on the pilots and say, good luck. They, there was going to be some form of training and spool up time. So at least two opportunities to bid for a test run, if you will, of how this is going to work so that when people are bidding for real, they have some experience under their belt. Exactly, David. We're going to have volunteers and crew rooms to help show you how to do the bidding. And then they call it a parallel bid. So you'll bid your normal schedule, bid a line, and then you'll have two opportunities to use PBS to bid to see what result you get so that you can better anticipate. And we also negotiated that pilots will get paid an hour for participating in that parallel bid. And the reason for that is we want to incentivize everybody to participate because the higher the participation, the better model that you'll have of what you would hold in, a, in, in your PBS bid. Scott, anything else on implementation that you're getting questions about? Yeah. I mean, Thanks, David. There's just a few things that are common and we're getting asked a lot, so we'll try to address them. Um, so December 1st, the contract goes live, except for what we've specifically said is going to come a little later. Just so people are aware, in December, you're going to have your 70-hour guarantee for bid block holders. Open time trading window is going to go from 70 to FAR max. So once open time trading opens, you can go down to 70 and you can go up as high as uh, 117 will allow you in your open time trading. I've been asked, when is Deadhead going to be full credit? And that's in February of 2023. So we got some ways to go. You're still going to get, you know, full pay as you have forever. And then average daily guarantee, that'll be full credit in March 31st of 2023. And th the reason those two are delayed is one, there's programming that is involved with ADG to get it in JCT as far as uh, tracking. But it's also, um, these are head count heavy, meaning it takes more pilots to fly the same schedule we have once we add these things. And so that's why there's a little bit of a, a pause to get to that, but it is an aggressive timeline regardless. 
The other one, the final and one. Just, sorry to interrupt real quick. Just to be clear, the ADG for pay goes into effect when? December 1st. Okay. So, um, and then third step is the final thing I'll mention. We're on track to get that at the end of February and then it implemented as soon as we can for, for that bid period in, in March. One last pitch is in the scheduling summary for December. Take the time to look through it and read it. A lot of the stuff that we've been talking about is we we write it in there. Take some time and, and read through that so that you understand the changes that are coming for November as well as the ones that are coming in December. And Will, maybe just to circle back on the point you were making about third step, one of the differences, I think, and I've, I've heard you mention this at the roadshow, is that the, the company has been promoting preferential bidding to their investors and the board. And so it there is a different kind of incentive on them to meet this deadline in addition to the financial penalty. Well, that's true. And, and regardless of whatever their motivations or incentives are, I think we'll talk about it here in a bit, about how we shift our focus towards making sure that this contract and all the elements we just discussed in terms of the implementation schedule are on track, that there's accountability and resources being devoted, planning regular cadence of meetings as our, you know, Scott already said that they're already underway, both on the operational level, but also on the management side, that I'll be doing regular tie-ins to, to make sure and follow up that things are moving as they have been promised. Right. And I think it's been a bit of a theme of this episode is that's where the unity and solidarity and the display of that from the pilot group will come in to be important in the year ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I, there's a lot when we start to talk about what pilots can do to continue to demonstrate unity and, you know, what are the expectations now? And a lot of that is really becoming educated on this contract, understanding the contract, and then obviously uh, holding everybody accountable if there are any failures in execution. That'll be the MEC's focus, but the, it's incumbent upon the pilots to step up and know the agreement and live the agreement. We started the podcast talking a little bit about unity and how that transitions and how that's demonstrated in this new agreement. And I'll tell you right now that if we are not the uh, the frontline defense to point out when implementation, for example, is not working as scheduled, then uh, we'll, we'll seed ground. And so I think that uh, there's more to be discussed here on this unity piece, but that definitely starts with the pilots becoming educated, familiar, and living the agreement. Well, Will, actually, it's not just unity. I think that one of the things that's really important to discuss here, and I know that it's most near and dear to Drew's heart, so he's going to jump on this right after I get done um, with my piece on this, but is volunteerism, you know, and other people stepping up into different roles. And even on this committee on SBC, you're going to see a switch here. You're actually seeing a switch. Myself and Drew are switching roles. I'm going to sunset here shortly in the next couple of months. I've done eight years. And frankly, I, I, I want to resume a life with my wife and, uh, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of sacrifice that goes into doing these jobs. But we need the up-and-coming generation. I need Drew. Drew's been working with me for a year and a half. And David, you and I have worked together for years. But um, Drew's been working with me a year and a half with the whole purpose of taking over from me. And my God, I couldn't be any more grateful to have anybody do it than him because I, I think Drew's more than capable of a phenomenal person. So um, but Drew, if you want to jump on the whole volunteerism, because I think it's essential that um, that people come forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's uh, kind of a lot to unpack on on the topics that we're we're kind of discussing right now. But you're right. I, I think 
volunteerism is something that is uh, near and dear to my heart. And I know all of us, you know, on this podcast right now got, got involved for different reasons. And on the road shows, a lot of different people got to explain, you know, what got them involved in, in Alpha work. But um, what I will say is, uh, you know, the future of the association and being able to accomplish what we just accomplished again during the next cycle is uh, incredibly important for us to have a strong volunteer base. And this is something that I plan to be working on and uh, in the near future is to make sure that, uh, you know, to, to use the example of, uh, you know, a, a bench uh, in a sports team, it's exactly what we what we have right now. And what we really want to do is reach out into the pilot group and find people who have a uh, passion for for different things like uh, our membership committees always look for people, uh, people who are interested in strategic preparedness, uh, people who are interested in scheduling. All those people that we have on the seniority list, they all bring something different. And what we really want to do is cultivate uh, that next generation. Um, in regards to uh, the kind words in, in your vote of confidence, I just want to say, you know, thank you for those. And, uh, you know, to, to David, to Will, to the entire MEC as we've gone through this cycle, um, you all have have given a tremendous amount. And what we really want to do is focus in on finding uh, more people to step up and, and continue uh, this culture of volunteerism that we have in our pilot group. Yeah, I'm going to, I, I honestly want to say before I close out, but I, I want to say that I've never worked with a group of people that I feel as close to, as professional, as dedicated as the group that got this thing across the line. This was truly a phenomenal team effort, and including many Alpha staff, such as Bruce, Liz, Tanya, Zach, Kim. There's just, I, I, we can just go on and talk for hours about the amount of people that we worked with over the past three years specifically, but it is time for me to go out. And I, I absolutely agree with you, Drew. It's we need that next bench to be filled. It's critical. It's absolutely critical that this work continue and it continue with with smart people who are out there. And I've, God knows I've had several people I've met and I would love to see step forward. Yeah. And, and please, if you're interested right now, let your rep know that you have an interest in, in a certain place and you, you can be put in touch right now with a, a committee chair and, and potentially find a place for you to volunteer. And thank you, Ronan, for, for bringing that up. I think it's incredibly important. Well, there's just one more standalone topic that we wanted to discuss, which is the position bid, which will close the Airbus base in San Francisco. So, Drew, I know you had some comments about that. Yeah, thanks, David. Bid 2023-03 will close the San Francisco Airbus base. So we want to reiterate the importance of, of making sure that pilots bid what they want and want what they bid. There is kind of one major caveat uh, with a bid like this, and that is that this bid does contain reductions. So anytime we have a bid with reductions in it, it's really important that a pilot making any type of speculative bid, for example, an FO bidding a uh, potential upgrade, uh, a pilot, whether it's an FO or a captain bidding from a particular base and seat into one where their relative seniority might be more junior, really needs to make sure they have a, a backstop. What we mean by a, a backstop bid is your last bid really needs to be your, your current seat and base or another position that you feel comfortable that you'll be able to hold even after the displacement is run. And I know every time we have one of these bids come up, it's, it's important to remember and remind people that vacancies are always run first. Then after all the vacancies have been processed, that's when you go into the reduction side of the bid. 
So again, any speculative or sport bidder uh, could see a particular award on the vacancy section, then followed by a displacement and the subsequent uh, displacement portion of that bid. So this is really why it's critical to make sure you have that uh, full defensive backstop in your bid. What we don't want to see is for a pilot to make a speculative bid, get an award, not have the backstop, and without the backstop, then the process of 2046 comes into play, and that can potentially find a pilot being in a base in a seat that they absolutely didn't bid and didn't expect to have and, and didn't want. So we really want to make sure pilots are paying close attention to this so, so we don't have pilots harming themselves in the bid process. And Will, I know you have a lot of experience with that too. I don't know if you have anything you want to add. No, I think you actually, you said it really, really well. It's just that everybody has to be very careful. I've seen so many mistakes in the 10 years that I did the position bids that people really need to want what they bid um, and make sure that they have a, a backstop in place and be very, very careful with the, the BP qualifiers, with the bid position qualifiers. Be the only thing I'd add. I'd add to it as well that every single time that we've gone through one of these bids, at least two guys get taken for a ride by 24E6, which is not somewhere you want to be. So I, I, I really appreciate you underscoring that again, Drew. Yeah, and just as a reminder, uh, the MEC update that just came out also contains uh, a membership committee uh, update that covers the bidding process for position bids. So please reference that as well. And just finally, to put a finer point on this, this is true in any base, so not only if you're in San Francisco. Absolutely. And, and to underscore that, when we talk about speculative bidders or, or sport bidders, I think is commonly used as well. We're talking about anybody who is potentially looking at moving from their current seat to a different seat, whether that's an upgrade or simply wanting to move uh, bases in their, their current uh, seat. Right. And as senior pilots potentially get displaced out of San Francisco, they can go where their seniority will hold, which may affect someone in any of the other bases, right? Absolutely. That can, that can end up having a downline effect where it does bump a junior pilot who was just awarded that particular position back somewhere else. And without that defensive backstop, that could, again, like Ronan said, take them for the ride on 2486, which is likely to be very different than what they had anticipated. All right. Well, Will, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, obviously we're once again at a, a pivotal kind of a cornerstone moment, I think, for this pilot group now with the, uh, such the long, hard-fought battle to achieve this contract. And uh, I'll reiterate that you know this contract is ours, and it's only going to be ours to the degree that we do, as I said earlier, educate ourselves on it and then defend it. I will reiterate also, rest assured, you know, we're, we're going to be holding the company accountable but that starts with the pilots and the entire MEC will uh, on the agreement all the way through implementation and will continue to advocate, obviously, for additional improvements as opportunities present themselves. I've gotten that question a few times as well. We'll also be focusing on getting the company to work through grievances now that uh, we're done with negotiations. Those need to be handled, and that message has been delivered to the very highest level that we need to address the grievances on file. In November, the MEC is going to hold its fourth quarter meeting where we'll focus on all these things, and uh, we hope to have a candid conversation with senior management that this contract is just the first step in the path forward, I think, to making this an airline that pilots want to come and work and stay and invest their careers in. 
And I do want to double down on something that uh, has been said earlier, which is that we got here because of the unity, the solidarity, and the support of this pilot group. Uh, plain and simple, that was it, and that's what will carry us through the future. That same unity is going to be crucial moving forward. So uh, continue the conversations in the flight deck. Continue to come to coffee sits. We'll have that same openness and transparency, and we'll be, we'll be out there listening to you because uh, listening to you is how we advocate effectively. Finally, I think that there is, uh, we've kind of said it a few times, but a huge thanks to this pilot group for the ongoing support, for the professionalism. And I know I can speak for Chris and his entire team, as well as all the volunteers and the MEC, that that unity, that that professionalism and the pilot group's support has been the driving force behind everything that we've gotten done and what we will do. All right. Well, thank you all for coming in today. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Bye, David. We'll continue to keep you informed of the implementation and other things going on with your MEC via these podcast episodes as well as our other communications. So we'll sign off. Thank you, and I really want to thank you all for listening. And again, thank you for your unity, for your support over the last several years. We've accomplished a lot, and that work will continue. You've been listening to the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I've been your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, David Campbell. Thank you.